Good morning to all of you joining us on live stream today. We are a church in multiple locations. And for the weeks to come, we'll have an 8.30, and, uh, for the foreseeable future, we will have an 8.30 and 11 o'clock in-person service here in this room, an 11 o'clock live stream. We're working toward also having an 8.30 live stream. And we'll just, uh, right now we're trying to work out a lot of kinks. So for those of you that 11 is too late right now watching us, hopefully we'll have something else available soon. But we have people meeting in churches, on patios. I know some life groups are starting to meet together to to worship. And uh, we're just glad you're with us. It's good to see faces in this room. It's good to see you, at least to see eyes. That's, that's, uh, I'll take it. It's just good to see people. And for those those of you on live stream watching right now, our message to you in the weeks to come, we are not begging you to come back here in in-person services. We know that a lot of us are moving at our own pace, and some of you are in a vulnerable category, and it needs to be a long time before you come back. So thanks for staying connected to us. Some of you, you're ready to come back. You just don't know if when you come back, if you can wear pajama pants or not to church. And I wish you could see all the people wearing pajamas right now in this crowd. Uh, this is, I think this is the, the first time I have preached in non-athletic shorts with a dress shirt two consecutive weeks. So it's a, this is a big move for me too. Um, we've uh, been talking about vision and core values for the last seven or eight weeks I know I've preached in front of cameras now 15 of the last 16 weeks. I'm grateful Jim Hinkle stepped in a couple of weeks ago and preached on one of our core values about discipleship. I felt like a few weeks ago, I guess a couple of months ago, we decided as a leadership to move forward with our vision. So we've been talking about that because I think one of the best times to move forward with vision is when we're in seasons of uncertainty, confusion, chaos. Having good, strong, clear vision of who we are and what we're about helps us combat any season we're going through. Our vision is that Sycamore View exists to awaken people to the greatness of Jesus. And vision statements are sometimes hard to memorize. If you memorize anything about our vision statement, that's it. Sycamore View exists to awaken people to the greatness of Jesus. As the Holy Spirit works to awaken us to all the ways God is restoring our world, we respond with joy, adventure, and courage. The next line of our vision statement is that through commitments and through core values, that we strive to align our actions and our behavior, our words, how we engage in relationships, actions and behaviors for what it is God wants for people, for Memphis and for the world. By the way we worship and the way we live, we join in the awakening. So you're going to hear more about this in the months and years to come as we try to pray through these core values, talk through our vision and live into the dreams of God. The last few weeks, I've been talking through core values, and today I want to talk about our last core value. If you look at these on our website or on a sheet of paper that came to every member, every family in our church, the last one is we are a restoration movement. A little over 200 years, the Churches of Christ have been a part of what has been called the restoration movement. It's not been an attempt, or at least at the beginning, it wasn't an attempt to restore worship styles to make it look like the first century. It was an attempt to restore mission and the purpose of who the early church was called to be. Now, if we're not careful, and I've talked about this a lot, if we're not careful, the restoration movement can become the preservation movement or the conservation movement, and we're not into trying to preserve or con- conserve. We're, we're into restoring. We don't, we don't want to be in some uh, uh, posture of trying to prevent things from happening or always on defense. We want to be about restoring the world and all the ways God is restoring the world. There are a lot of ways to read the Bible. I think reading the Bible through a lens of restoration is one of the best ways to read the Bible. That God has taken and still takes broken things and God puts it back together and makes something beautiful. 
the, in Japanese art, one of the most beautiful, priceless pieces of art they have. Uh, you, can go, you can Google this and check out Japanese art, but it's actually broken pieces of pottery that are put back together. So teacups and their bowls and, and things that have been broken. And then you can actually, like you can see the brokenness in them. But these are priceless pieces. So most of the people in Japan prefer to have these over something that is brand new. And Barbara Bloom, in one of her books, she says this about this art. She says, when the Japanese men broken objects, they aggrandize the damage by filling the cracks with gold because they believe that when something has suffered damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. And I love it. It's a testimony of most of our lives that there's brokenness in us, yet we have a God who didn't leave us and doesn't leave us in a broken place. He's putting us back together and he makes something beautiful out of it. These are the testimonies many of us have to share. Every Tuesday, every Tuesday in the life of this church, we have a Celebrate Recovery and they have started to meet on our campus again. And every Tuesday night, this is what they celebrate. It's broken people who God is putting back together and there's this testimony of this brokenness that is made beautiful through what God has done. And God is doing this in people, God is doing this in communities, and ultimately God's going to do this with the world. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, almost the very end of the Bible. I want to walk us through Revelation. I want to talk about three things today. I want to talk about how we know the future. I want to talk about how important it is that we know the beginning, and I want to talk about what it means to live in the middle. So we're going to begin with the end. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 5. Um, and, And here's how it goes. Let me read it, and I'm going to talk about it for a moment. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And for the reading of the Word of God, everybody in this room and on live stream says, Amen. Amen. This is our future. So whenever I'm trying to navigate cultural climate and racial inequality and what's going on in the world, and then I remember how Jesus taught us to pray about the kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, I go to Revelation 21, 1 through 5. This is our future. This is what God is slowly bringing into our present. This is the future. And in, that, in verse 1 of uh, chapter 21, it says that when this is happening, there will be no more sea. In Judaism, for years, the sea stood for chaos. So the, de- the declaration of what the end is going to be like is God's going to come and God's going to drive out all chaos. It's going to be gone. Nothing's going to disrupt our lives or disrupt the world again. The new heavens and the new earth, something is coming down. It talks about how God is going to dwell among humans. That anything, the enemy, anything is Satan that Satan has tried to take for himself, ultimately in the end, God's going to take it back as a rightful owner. And God's going to set all things right. He's going to restore this earth. God's going to make everything new. That's how it ends. Now go to Revelation chapter 1, and here's the beginning. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, it says this, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, 
the firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve as God and, uh, and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That Jesus Christ has a beginning for us. Because of all Jesus has accomplished through death, burial, and resurrection, there is a beginning. Now, in the Revelation, it talks about how Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb that was slain. And as Jesus being the Lamb, with Jesus being the Lamb, there is now victory. Now, the implementation of that victory is still taking place, and there's more implementation to go. So sometimes people will talk to me, or my boys sometimes talk to me, you know, Dad, if Jesus took out Satan 2,000 years ago, why is there so suffering in the world, and death in the world, and sin in the world? Why didn't Jesus just do away with it all? The victory has been won, the implementation is still on its way. Now, this is the beginning. The beginning for us is that Jesus has done something and now we get to choose Jesus and this journey into the beginning, for you to have a beginning, it's a journey from death to life. It's not just a journey of adding something onto your life as if you have a plan for your life and you're moving through your life and then you decide at some point for Jesus to come and be a companion as you try to live your life. The journey and the beginning of following Jesus is it's death to life. It's you realizing you have to come to a point where you can no longer, you can't save yourself you can't find joy on your own. We have to declare for ourselves, look, I am nothing. I have to become nothing so that Jesus can become everything in me. It's death to life. It's not just a progression. It's not a graduation. It is a death, a moment of death and life. It's why the church has celebrated baptism since the very beginning. It's death to life. Full immersion, everything I am, all in is gone and there's a new way, a new life, for, a new way for me to go. I've shared the story before, but when I was going to church camp my senior year, I was passionate about evangelism. There was a kid who came to me, came to our cabin one night, knocked on the door of our cabin. He had been talking to his counselors. He was ready to be baptized at 1.30 in the morning, and they came to get me to go, but he wanted me to baptize him. 1.30 in the morning. So we jump in a 15-passenger van. We go down to the river where we would baptize people. And as we drove down to the river, the, the lights from the van shone on the water where we would baptize people. And multiple water moccasins took off swimming from the place where we would baptize people. And in the moment, I was like, man, like, this is really death to life. That's what this is. Like, you have to decide how bad do you want it. And he was like, let's go. And I was like, oh, no, you go. <laughs> I don't have to go. The Bible doesn't say that you have to have your hands on someone when you baptize him. You go down. When I move my hand, go down and hang out with Jesus as long as you want. When you come back, we'll celebrate you being a new life. I wasn't going to risk my life for this. Uh, I went in with him and we celebrated death to life. It's death to life. It's not just graduation. It's not just adding Jesus. It's death to life. There's a future. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. There's a beginning. Now, before I move much further, I want you to see Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Because this gave me a whole new way to like read Revelation and celebrate Revelation and how I encourage people to read the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. It's the only book in the New Testament where it says you will be blessed if you read this. And of course, I think you'll be blessed if you read any part of the Bible. It's the only book that says if you read it, you will be blessed. If you read it out loud and you hear it, I often encourage people when you read Revelation, 
Don't just read it over 22 days or over a few months. Carve out a couple of hours. Read the whole thing. Get the whole, the big picture of what it is. It's a marvelous book. Now, there are those who have said things like, it's a really strange book and almost as strange as the people who try to read it, right? Almost as strange as the people who try to interpret it. Some people have talked about how the book of Revelation is popular like some music that you don't understand. Have you ever listened to music that you're kind of drawn to but you don't really understand it, but you still appreciate it? Some people describe the book of Revelation like if you're watching the movie Shrek or the TV show Psych where there are a lot of pop cultural references and nursery rhymes. And if you're sitting with people who understand the nursery rhymes and the pop cultural references, it's a lot funnier than if you're watching it with people who don't. Because the book of Revelation is full of images and metaphors and codes. And I, I agree with those who, who think that the coded language is referring to the Roman Empire. Now, when the book of Revelation was written, most likely in the reign of the emperor Domitian, there wasn't a systematic persecution against Christians, meaning that the whole Roman Empire wasn't trying to kick or, or to kill all Christians at the time. There were some forms of systematic persecution breaking out locally, but it wasn't over the entire empire. But there was worship of the emperor that was growing in pockets all over the place where there was worship of the emperor, and you can still worship your other gods too, but you, you've got to worship the emperor. And this was growing in a lot of these places. I agree with people like N.T. Wright and others. I don't think Revelation is written about the end of times. I think Revelation was written to people to encourage them to affirm and reaffirm the allegiance to Jesus as they were living in a hostile world, which is why I think Revelation is so helpful for us in the times we're living in now. I don't think Revelation is this message that all is well in heaven and one day all will be blissful on earth, but the Revelation is written to teach Christians how to behave in light, how to behave as light by the triumph of the Lamb as we navigate a world that has gone wild. Did you know today there are certain countries in our world in the year 2020 where the Bible's not illegal, but in some countries preaching Revelation is illegal. And the reason why is Revelation has some pretty strong messages about bringing down the thrones of the world and the powers of the world. That there is this grassroots, powerful movement called the kingdom of God that is on its way, that has lasted 2,000 years, is still going, and will fully be implemented one day. I think the best way to read Revelation is that Revelation is urging and encouraging believers to give all of your allegiance to Jesus while you live in a world that has gone crazy. In Revelation chapter 2, there are seven churches that are addressed. I don't don't want to read all seven, but I want to read the first one. The first one is written to the church in Ephesus. Maybe next to Corinth, we know more about early church, the first Christians in the city of Ephesus than any other place. There's, of course, the book called Ephesus or Ephesians. There, the city of Ephesus, there's a lot about it in the book of Acts and even other letters throughout the Bible. Ephesus started in Acts 19. The church in Ephesus started with 12 people. And there are historians who talk about decades later that, that the number of Christians had grown to tens of thousands of people because the, these people in this city, the city full of all kind of pagan temples and all kind of witchcraft, and the, the power of the Holy Spirit caught hold of a few people and the church was exploding and growing as people were taking seriously what it means to follow Jesus. And decades later, the book of Revelation comes. And here's what we read, chapter 2, 1 through 7. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in its right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nickelodeons. And all of us who have had kids through COVID, we hate these practices too. The Nicolaitans, all right? I think they knew who exactly who, who the author was referring to. There was a group of people somehow setting themselves up against Jesus, okay? Which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So as this letter is addressed to the church of Ephesus... The first few verses in this are about how they, they're hard work. They're, they're serving people. They're taking care of the sick. They're, they're hanging out in soup kitchens. Like they're caring for people and they're doing it well. And not only that, they're standing up against false teaching. Like they're, they're doing a lot of things good. But here's the one thing that the Spirit of God had against them. They had forgotten their first love. They had forsaken their first love. Like, I mean, it's possible for us to do this too, right? Like to get caught up in acts of service and trying to do the right thing and be the right kind of people, yet forsake our first love. To get caught up in something like COVID where we're going through this now 100 plus days, over 16 weeks of this. And some of us are just trying to survive, trying to hang on by a thread, just trying to make it to the next day. And as we do that, sometimes we can forget our first love. Or we're trying to navigate cultural climate and racial inequality and we want to stand with people and for people and we want to understand. And this can be draining and, and sometimes as you try to navigate these things, you can forget your first love. Or in a year like 2020 where we have COVID and we're living in a time right now of social and cultural unrest and there's a presidential election this year that's going to be wild, we can, we can get caught up in things and we can forget our first love. Which is why I think this message is so relevant, not just for the people 2,000 years ago, but for us today. To make sure every day, you have to make decisions to live from that place of your first love. You can't just live from your wedding day. You can't just live for the future. It's intentional decisions every day. I want to live from the place of my first love. A God who loved me and a God who asked us to love God. So here are three things. I want you to take home today, all right? Know your future. Know your beginning. Live in the middle. Know your future. Know your beginning. Live in the middle. Chris Altrock had a blog a couple of days ago that reminded me of something that one of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey, talked about this. Philip Yancey uh, wrote an article. It was in one of his books where he talked about uh, the Grand Canyon bus syndrome. And what he says is this, there's this Grand Canyon bus syndrome, and he warns that this view of faith results in disciples who are tourists taking a bus across the country to see the Grand Canyon. 
And the way Philip Yancey describes it is you have this destination of getting on a tour bus to go see the Grand Canyon. And what happens is you start way out east or you start in the Midwest. And as you you drive through the plains of Kansas and you drive through the mountains of Colorado, but you don't see anything because on the bus you had pulled the blinds down. And he says this, Intent on the ultimate destination, they never even bothered to look outside. As a result, they spend their time arguing over such matters as who has the best seat and who's taking too much time in the bathroom. They become so heavenly minded that they are no, no earthly good because their focus is only on the destination. Know your future. Know the beginning. Live faithfully with God in the middle. Know your future. Like, I mean, the book of Revelation, I have a, a professor who said, here's how you sum up Revelation. God wins. You get to make a choice. Don't be stupid. Like, that's what you need to know about the book of Revelation. Know your future. We need this God-eye view. Their uh, whales have to come up every 80 to 90 minutes for a breath of air. They have to breach. They have to come above the water. And if they don't, they die. And we can't live way up there at 30,000 feet, always thinking about the future, always thinking about heaven. We, we live this life, we're in the grind of life, but every once in a while we need this God eye view to, rem- to remember, to be reminded this story is going somewhere. And we have to know our beginning. Where, where did that beginning, where was it? What, how, how did God call me? What, what was the conversion like? When did I decide to follow Jesus? And maybe it was a day and a moment. Maybe it was a process. But we need to know the beginning, that we weren't just saved from something. We were saved into something. And now live with God in the middle. Because I think Revelation was saying then. Well, Revelation is still saying now. Be a good citizen. Be a good person. But do not ever bow your knee or your heart to kingdoms of this world. You bow your, you be a good person, live every day to the fullest, but don't ever sell your soul to anything other than the kingdom of God. Your allegiance is to Jesus, no matter what. Steve Jobs, when he ran Apple the first time, back in the 80s, he got to a point where he, uh, he, he wanted to spend a lot more of his time as the visionary and tapping into creative energy. So he wanted to find someone else to run Apple. So he set his eyes on a guy named John Scully. John Scully was running Pepsi. He was the CEO of Pepsi at the time. And uh, for five months, Steve Jobs would fly to New York City to meet with John Scully to try to convince him to come run Apple. Every weekend for five months, Steve Jobs would do this. And John Scully had been running Pepsi for a while. He was close to retirement. He liked living in New York City. He didn't want to relocate to the West. He was just a few years away from just retirement, and he, he didn't want to do it. Now, <clears throat> I think it's worth saying that if this would have been the Dr. Pepper company, this, this story would not have gone the way it did. It was Pepsi, right? Like, maybe for some of you, Coca-Cola, Diet Coke, maybe it goes a different way than it does with Pepsi. But it so, so he met with John Scully, and finally Steve Jobs said this. John Scully is on the record saying, Here, here's the moment where he broke. And Steve Jobs looked at him, and Steve Jobs said, Look, John, do you want to spend the rest of your life trying to give people sugared water, or do you want to be a part of trying to change the world? And Scully said that's what it took, was a greater vision of how we could help the world. So he did it, quit his job, moved out west, and for the next 10 years of his life, 
He ran Apple. Now, Steve Jobs wasn't asking Scully to invest in the kingdom of God and that kind of life change. But Jesus asks us to do just that. And it can be easy for us, especially in times we're in right now, just to kind of get in cruise control and forget that we have been invited into this amazing journey. And we can get in cruise control where we never invite other people to come and join us. And the book of Revelation is trying to urge and encourage people, hey, let the Holy Spirit fill you with life and courage so other people can come on the journey too. So in the weeks to come, we're going to have a way where those of you watching online, that you have a way to respond on our website. If you just go to sycamoreview.org, there's a connect page, a connect link. If you click that, there are a lot of different boxes you can check. If you're interested in being baptized, if you want to know more about the church, if there's something we can pray for, you can do that. For those of you here who will be here in person, you can respond in the same way. And not today, but in the weeks to come, we're going to have a special room where you are able to meet with elders at a safe distance where we can try to provide some pastoral moments right here on our campus because the way we do some response is going to be a little different moving into the future. And right now, for those of you at home, we're going to move into a time of communion. So if you have the elements, if you have the bread and the cup with you, or maybe it's in the kitchen, go and get those. Go ahead and get them. And you may choose just to pause in this moment with the church and then come back after the service and take it. For those of you who are here, hopefully you have the individual packet or you brought your own communion into the room today. Get that ready. And as we take this today, I want us to celebrate. Everything Jesus did to make this moment possible for us. And with this bread and with this cup, we're reminded of this. We have a future. We have a beginning. And this bread and this cup reminds us, live with God, live with Jesus in the middle. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. God, with open hearts and open hands, call us right now, God, with, not just with our lips, with our hearts, full allegiance to Jesus and nothing else. You have been so faithful to us. Through your help and through the Holy Spirit working in us, we want to be faithful to you. For all Jesus has done for us, for his life, his death, conquering the, conquering the grave, conquering death, we surrender to the only one who gives us life eternal. And in this moment, we take this as a church in a lot of different locations, believing that all the different ways we come at life and interpret the world, this bread and this cup holds us together through it all. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.